Welcome to Subject to Talent, brought to you by Allegis Global Solutions. Similar to you, we're always trying to learn more. On this podcast, we speak to talent experts around the world, covering workforce management, market trends, technology, and a forever evolving dynamic industry. Hello, thanks for joining us for season two of Subject to Talent. My name is Brank Edge. In our first episode of this year, I had the opportunity to talk with AGS's Vice President of EMEA, Simon Bradbury. We spoke about where the industry is right now, the opportunities for businesses this year, and what the distant future might look like. I hope you enjoy. Uh, we like to start off all of our episodes um, with the question, how did you get into this industry? Well, yeah, that's very interesting. I think like so many people, um, I got into it by accident. So I never had any great plan that I was going to have a career in recruitment or anything like that. Um, I uh, went to university in London. I went to London School of Economics. And I decided that when I graduated, uh, which was in 1992, that what I would do is I'd go and work in an investment bank, which is what people from LSE generally do as a stereotype. And um, so I went to a recruitment agency to, to get me a job. And I thought, wow, guys, aren't you lucky? You have an LSE graduate here. Um, how do you feel about that? And uh, they very quickly said to me, um, you don't want to work in a bank. What do you want to do is work here, which was which was absolutely news to me at the time. Um, and, um, and so I thought, well, OK, I want to live in London. Um, and uh, it wasn't a great time economically, so I thought, well, I'm going to, I'll do that. And uh, took the job and I thought, I'll do it for six months and then I'll get a proper job. Um, but at least I'll be here um, based in London. And that was that was uh, with a company called Hayes and I was there for 18 years. Um, and uh, yeah, that's how I got into it. And in fact, one little side story on that is that the guy who hired me, um, who had that interview with me and hired me, basically still works in the, not the same physical building, but still works in the same company, doing the same desk. He's been there, I think, 33 years. Um, and he's still a fee-earning consultant. Um, so he's pretty much unique and he's a good friend. So um, so yeah, so that's my story of how I managed to enter into recruitment. I worked, I did work in the kind of the staffing agency side initially, um, but after probably about four years, I got into the outsourcing market and, I, and I've pretty much been in outsourcing ever since. That's incredible. And uh, did your background, uh, your 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 studies, did that change the way that you uh, you maybe approach things, um, or was it that make it different uh, compared to other people? I don't. You know, that's a great question. I I've ne- I've never really quite thought about it. I think that um uh, I I would I would say that largely the answer to that is no. Um, I, <laughs> I I I I think that the um, I'd actually tempt for the for the agency in the summer. So that's kind of, I, I knew a few people there. Um, but from an educational perspective, I don't think that, um, you know, the, the only thing that it helped me with was that I started in investment banking recruitment um, on the agency side. And I was fortunate in the sense that the market was so good that you could be really rubbish and still make money. And that was, and I don't think I was, a, I don't think I was the world's best recruitment consultant by any stretch of imagination. But all of the kind of terminology around what makes an investment bank work, you know, um, uh, back office, front office, what's an equity, what's a loan, you know, all, all these, what's a derivative, all that kind of stuff. I knew all that. And so I used to run investment banking terminology sessions 
um, even for people much more senior than me. And I think that got me noticed a bit, probably, because I was doing a bit beyond just filling jobs and being a salesperson. And that probably gave me the first step on the kind of ladder of management or, or, or whatever that might be. So I think probably that aspect, it, it was definitely beneficial. But other than that, the, in those very early days, it was it was really about being a successful recruiter and filling jobs. Right. And uh, I mean, from that, you, you say that was your first step onto ladder. What is that side uh, of, of, of your role? Because I know you've been around and you've, you've worked for a few different organizations in leadership roles. You know, what's what's brought you to, to this point right now? Um, so in terms of what's what's brought me to AGS, um, I 100% wanted to have autonomy. And I was so impressed by AGS's long-term view in terms of investing in strategically important projects, technologies, acquisitions. Um, and, and I appreciate that you don't by accident suddenly start having, you know, cool tools like Acumen or quantum work. This is something that someone's had an idea on. It's been incubated. It's been backed by leadership. You've then gone and made it happen. And and it, it felt to me this was just like the right sort of place. And in terms of coming to AGS in particular, also culturally, it was just that it was a fit. Um, I've obviously come here via a number of steps. Um, I worked, for, for, as I mentioned, I mentioned Hayes for a long time in different roles, um, I worked in sales. I really enjoyed sales. I really enjoy the hurly-burly of a bid. It's not particularly because I love winning. I'm just a terrible loser. And and the <laughs> fear of losing is so awful for me that it drives me to, to do anything I can to win, which sounds really perverse, but that's just the way my inner workings of my brain are. Um, and I've never, I, I did fall out of love with with recruitment for for a period of time left the industry went and worked at Deloitte in HR transformation uh, as a consultant in an HR consultant and within a year realized that I really missed it <laughs> and I wanted yeah. the I wanted the culture and the and 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 the hurly burly that is um recruitment outsourcing and so came back and and took the opportunity to go and work overseas so I lived overseas for for 7 years I lived in Asia based in Singapore but covering the whole region and that was that was amazing and it, no doubt about it that was a that was a, it was a conscious decision i'd never thought about working and living overseas until that moment came and then when that moment came it just felt right and again and um i know this uh uh, this isn't a, a session where I should be sitting on a couch and you should be uh, helping me, Frank. But um, uh, but but it, just in terms of the way my mind was, even that moment when I decided that I was going to go and, and take a role and launch a business, launch a recruitment outsourcing business in Asia from nothing. Um, I the real motivation for me was that I didn't want someone else to do it. I just thought I thought if I don't do it in five years' time, I'm going to look at whoever does do it and think that should have been me. And again, that was that was kind of the inner workings of my mind. That's what made me go and do it. So that was that was why I went and did that. So so it's been a it's been a circuitous and convoluted uh, route to get to where I am today. But I have to say that the the number one thing above anything else is that I've really, really enjoyed it. I've been really fortunate and, and I'm thoroughly enjoying what I'm doing right now. I think if you can have that in a job, it's it's perfect, right? That's, yeah, uh, it's, and, and, that's uh, yeah I'm, I'm lucky. You're absolutely right, but I'm lucky from yeah. that perspective. 
So um, you have this, you know, you, you have this diverse background, you've moved around, um, you've worked in different areas of the world, and you've got a pretty extensive experience. Uh, when it comes to talent and workforce management, are there lessons to be learned from different parts of the world? Could we learn from different regions? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the the first thing to say is that Europe is more similar to North America or they're more similar to one another, in my experience, than either of them are to Asia. Um, It was very interesting living in Asia, working in Asia for a European-based organization. uh, And all the countries in Asia are just so different culturally, but also from a recruitment industry perspective. Japan, is completely different to Singapore, which is completely different to India, which is completely different to China, which is completely different to Australia, which is completely different to Malaysia, which is completely different to Korea. And it'd be very easy to go, oh, Asia, in inverted commas, but you are literally dealing with countries that are um, completely diverse from one another, have their own histories. Um, And in my experience, those histories are more diverse than, than, than Europe even. Um, different countries in Europe. And also the recruitment industry itself uh, is very different because it's far more regulated. And I lived in Singapore. Um, To give you an example, in Singapore, recruitment is more regulated or as regulated as financial services, financial advisory services are. You cannot do any recruitment at all unless you have passed an exam. And you cannot run a recruitment business unless you've passed a higher level exam called a key appointment holder. So that was the first academic exam I did since university when I um, uh, when I went to do that. And and you know there are very severe penalties for you know it's very very easy to go to prison for getting something wrong in recruitment in in Asia, particularly in Singapore. Um, it is not very easy to go to prison for doing something wrong in recruitment in the either the US or. Um, the UK, just as examples. And and one other thing I would say is that interesting, one of the countries that I covered was the Philippines. I have it on good authority, although I'm not a lawyer, um, that if you breach uh, employment uh, recruitment agency legislation in the Philippines, uh, you have a maximum penalty of 18 years without the opportunity for parole. And the penalty wow. for murder is 18 years but with the opportunity for parole. So actually it's more, it's treated more severely for breaching recruitment licensing operations than it is actually for murder. Um, I hope I've got that, uh, that, that particularly right. But my point is uh, you, just, you just can't go in assuming, you can't go to Asia assuming that the way that you do things in other parts of the world is just gonna fly, it really isn't. And that would be my, my number one um, point is that you really need to think about things from a localized perspective. It was a wonderful experience doing that for a number of years. Uh, and I yeah, thoroughly, one other thing I would say is to anyone that's listening to this, if you get the opportunity to go and work overseas, think very, very carefully before you turn it down because it almost, no matter what state, when I was 40, when I got the opportunity to go and work overseas, and it never crossed my mind before, but even after the first year or two were really, really hard um, because we were setting something up from from scratch and, and it's very hard to convince people to, to work with you, convince clients. But even at that point, even there were, there were moments when I wasn't certain it was going to work and it did work out brilliantly in the end. 
But even at those points, I thought, I'm never going to look at this as a mistake because this is an amazing experience. I've expanded my experience and my view. So that's one thing I say to anyone that's listening. I'm not saying that every overseas opportunity is going to be right, but I would suggest it's far more likely that you'll regret things that you don't do than things that you do do. <laughs> that's, that's a good takeaway. Um, I want to talk about 2020. Um, it was uh, definitely not what we planned. Uh, um, I think I can safely say that, but I want to, I want to ask you, you know, what did you learn from the year? Um, and, you know, and how did you see the market react? What, what kind of stood out to you? I don't think there's ever been a year like it. And that sounds like a cliche, but I really don't think there has been. And, and I don't think there'll ever be another year quite like it. I certainly hope not. Um, I, there have been an awful lot of, of lessons that have been learned, but I think the market will by which I mean the, the labour market, the recruitment market, will never be the same again. I think the main reason for that is that flexibility is now ingrained in the way businesses think beyond the way that it was before. So what I mean by that is obviously there's the home location piece. Um, you know, people people are now able to to work from home and a lot of senior people and a lot of organisations, a lot of our clients, would have previously insisted as a matter of policy, you know, you basically need to be in the office, you know, maybe we'll give you a day a week. It was fairly prescriptive. That's changed, and I'm not sure it'll ever go back. Different organisations will adapt to it differently. But there, there will undoubtedly be a greater feeling now that people have proved because productivity essentially hasn't gone down from those people that were working at home. So the yeah. argument, the fundamental argument, which is, well, we can't, you know, we, we, we'll lose productivity has gone. That's not to say that people won't work in offices anymore because, of course, there's camaraderie from a training perspective. In particular, people learn mostly from observing what other people are doing. So, so I'm not suggesting that all of a sudden there will be a complete fundamental switch, but there will be greater flexibility. And one of the things I've already started talking to clients about is they see the opportunity to hire people, particularly in high cost countries, but remotely, predominantly remotely, that, that, that attitude has changed. And clients were already talking to us about, well, if we want to hire somebody doing X skill set, and it could be anything, um, we don't just want people that can get to London three days a week or four days a week or wherever our head office may be, we'll consider people that can work from home for all five days a week um, or actually we don't have fixed hours. Those conversations and they see an opportunity there for an increased pool of talent and they see an opportunity potentially for it being a cost optimization route as well in some cases. Yeah. Those, those conversations are already taking place and I think that will be the biggest legacy um, of this year. I, I think that's huge um, because, yeah, it, if, you're, if your area um, lacked a certain talent and I, I know a lot of companies would be thinking, oh, there's a there's, you know, great skill set over in this part of the world. If only we had an office there to attract these sort of uh, these people. But now that that isn't the conversation. Like you said, you can have remote workers and you can start to target uh, you know, those, those skill sets wherever they are, because everyone's used to working from home and, uh, um, working remotely. Is there, um, a flip side to that? Like, are, are people worried about, um, you know, perhaps office culture and, uh, you know, the fact that, you know, everyone is remote. What, you know, what are the challenges to doing that? I guess. Great question. 
some some people are some leaders definitely are that I'm talking to but I think most I have a, I use a phrase a lot which is common sense will prevail and the, the, the drive to greater flexibility doesn't mean that you can't go in and meet your colleagues it means that you that you do that as much as you want as much as you feel the need to and as much as optimal actually there's a balance to be struck here so so I'm personally not worried about that because I know when I mean I started working for AGS during lockdown and I missed the office so I was keen to get into the office because I wanted to meet people and, and speak to people I know that it's it's not really practical but the, but but other people did too and we, there was one day when we said actually a few of us are going to be in and and lots of people turned up and we had social distancing and and all that kind of thing but I think because people do crave that there's not going to be any barriers to that I think the bigger challenge will be trying to um, train and develop people. We know that 70% of, of training and learning um, takes place really from observation and just working with colleagues and, and, um, and um, observing in particular. I think that that's the, that's the bigger thing for me to make sure that we don't see a drop off in how people develop because there's a lower opportunity to observe the, you know, more experienced or more senior colleagues. So I think that there's that. Otherwise, I think it'll figure itself out. And, and I don't think we should be too prescriptive as organisations uh, as to exactly what that looks like. That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, I want to talk about technology. Um, in 2020, it kind of played a big part. And I want to kind of ask, you know, how has technology shifted the industry? Or maybe it's the other way around. Maybe it's how has the industry shifted technology? I, I think the big change in recruitment... As, a, as an industry overall has been technology and it has been happening over the last probably six or seven years. I don't think recruitment changed that much for probably the 25 years leading up to that. And then all of a sudden we've seen, you know, new technology after new technology. In fact, globally over the last five years, there's been about one new technology launched somewhere in the world that's been either recruitment specific or it's got a very, you know, clear application for recruitment. But given that, I don't think that it's changed the industry enough. Um, I think that the amount that we've actually seen technology deployed and truly change things has been significant, but not as significant as it should have been. I mean, of course, everyone, you know, the applications are online, but you still see the majority of organisations wanting a CV. Um, yes, we've seen people being able to work remotely because of the accessibility of not just the good in, in internet being able to talk work remotely and talk to people remotely but active video um calls which means that you can see people's reactions you can talk in real time without a delay all of that kind of comes without a uh comes that comes without saying what i would say though is that i think there has been a gap whereby lots of tools are not there's lots of chopping and changing so some tools come and go some tools come, they've got clear applications for, um, you know, and pick, a, pick an area of recruitment for um, assessment or for uh, video interviewing or for, you know, assisting in uh, writing advertisements or, and I could go on. Um, mm -hmm. But the, the, what happens is the really success, the, the, the fi financing model for these tools, for technologies, tends to be they become successful, then they become really expensive, then they die off a bit because they don't get adopted <laughs> quite as widely. And I don't think either 
the funding model for either organisations or for outsourcing providers such as ourselves has really truly worked well enough to see the real value from from all of these tools. So there was a survey recently um, that I saw um, with HR Grapevine where where the number one challenge that was being highlighted by clients was was deployment of technology. And I th- and this was a twenty twenty survey, and I thought, well, that's really surprising i can understand um in 2015 or 2016 that might be the case but i think the reality is that some tools are coming in and and how well are they really being fully utilized so i so i think that there have been significant changes but i don't think those changes have been as um pronounced as they should have been and i think the Mm -hmm. real challenge for the next couple of years and in particular i think that falls at the feet of organizations such as ags is how do we make sure that the tools that are there are actually being deployed and used properly and effectively um, rather than coming up with ever new tools? It's about an effectiveness of use. And I think that's, a, that, that's really the role of technology interplaying with recruitment for the next year. Yeah. Um, would you say that, I mean, previously it's, it's perhaps um, innovation for innovation's sake, but recently... You know, we're trying, we're starting to get to grips with, you know, what actually do we need? You know, this, this is the challenge and this is the technology to actually get us to, you know, the, the solution of, of, uh, of that challenge. I think that's, uh, a, sorry, yeah, I think that's a really good way of summarizing it. I think to say that I, I don't think that anyone that's created a technology would be thinking that it is innovation for innovation's sake or technology for technology's sake. They've always got, a fundamental principle and need at the heart of what's being done. I think that the the challenge is that the, the, the tools have to interplay in a broader ecosystem and sometimes things which look really cool and really great don't have the most practical applications. And so I think that there have been occasions when that's been the case. But even so, there are undoubtedly um, areas of recruitment which are now commonplace, which wouldn't have been a few years ago. And written a, submitting a kind of video summary of yourself is definitely one of them. Having interviews by video, well, COVID's completely solved that because that is absolutely the norm. So yep. I think that, that there have definitely been significant changes, but not as much as I would have liked to have seen. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting on the, the video interviews because I think that was maybe a culture thing as well, like where culture has to catch up with being comfortable with doing that sort of thing. Um, you know, people last year, you know, maybe scared of video, but now you have to do it. And, uh, you know, um, everyone's got used to it because it's the way we've been communicating. And, you know, we've, we're li- living much more in a virtual world than, than we ever were. So perhaps the the you know the the uptake of of uh, these technologies by people and uh, is 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 a lot better because of that it, it's it's absolutely second nature and actually in my world and i often am involved in delivering a presentation to a client about our services a pitch essentially and i remember thinking for the first one of those because when when covid hit there were none there was three months when everything sort of stopped and then we we started having you know presentations and pitches come in where we would be presenting virtually. And I thought, well, this is going to be really interesting. And as soon as you've done the first one, it's second nature. And in fact, there are, there are some real benefits because 
you know, you can use your own. You don't need to worry about you know sending over a presentation in advance. You can you can have you can have more people. So one of the biggest benefits actually of that that I've observed is that you've been able to have a greater number of people, and therefore the the SMEs for a particular subject matter have always been there to talk about what they will personally do rather than having a smaller number of maybe salespeople or leaders talking more broadly about areas they're not truly experts in. And I think it's actually been a, been a real benefit. That's great. Um, I know that dust hasn't quite settled yet, um, but do you have any predictions for 2021? Okay, so um, I think that one I, one I would probably like to focus on I do think it'll be a year of change and I'm not going to go over the ground we've covered in terms of you know, working patterns and, and so on. But I think that that's part of it. I think from a recruitment outsourcing perspective, I think that there will be two primary changes. I think, first of all, for non-permanent workers, you will see an increasing propensity for all non-permanent workers to be taken together in one uh one view, one one tender, one service, and and that is already happening almost universally. But I think that the biggest single change that's going to hit the industry, and let's see if this is turns out to be true or not, is that I think it's been a year of reckoning for permanent recruitment outsourcing, what, what we call RPO. I actually personally don't like the phrase RPO um, because I think that RPO, so the P in RPO stands for process, and I've never really thought that RPO was a process. I thought it was really a service. So, so parking the fact that I don't like the terminology, but accepting <laughs> that it is the industry standard, um, I think it's been a year of reckoning for RPO because people stopped hiring. And on the back of, there were undoubtedly some organisations, there was a bit of a trend for organisations to in-house. And I think the industry is hurt. I think RPO has, has, has found it a really hard year globally. And I think there will be a regeneration of RPO, a rethink of what the services are. And I think all RPO providers will be asking them, what value do we really add? In particular, what do we do for clients that clients can't do for themselves? And, and that will require quite a lot of thought. Um, I know we're thinking about that um, at AGS to make sure that we're um, increasing the value that we offer to clients in, in RPO in the future. So I definitely see that kind of, that, that, that fundamental rethink of what's happening. And I think that the, 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 the areas of RPO service providers essentially just transacting on behalf of clients, carrying out their processes, just doing stuff that a client could do themselves on an outsourced basis, I think they'll become less common. Whereas actually mm -hmm. at the moment, they're the most common version of RPO. So I think that the RPO providers to survive and, and clients are gonna be looking for more significant value add differentiated services or else I don't think they'll bother. So I think that'll be the, the biggest change and let's see if that pans out to be the case or not. Okay. Okay. That's cool. Um, so total talent, um, it's been lingering in the industry for a while now. Are you seeing the market get closer to it? So I don't like to answer questions with a question, but what is total talent? And I'm not necessarily going to force you to ask that because it's a bit of a rhetorical question, but I think the problem with total talent 
was that there was no definition of what that meant. So I know I know people that would regard total talent as well, you've outsourced your MSP and RPO and you've given them to the same provider, that equals total talent. I know people that would say, well, we, we share candidates across non-permanent and permanent, or we consider non-permanent candidates for permanent, that's total talent. Um, I know procurement people that think, well, we get our providers the same, that means it gives us an opportunity for cost saving because we can, you know, there's, there's, there's economies of scale. Um, so, but I don't think, it, for me, I don't think any of those things are where the market's going. So let me park terminology um, because I actually wouldn't use the phrase total talent to talk about where the where, where the market is going, partly because I think it's undefined. It's kind of come and gone a bit. But also the word talent to me specifically refers to or is more commonly used to talk about permanent staff. And I don't think total talent is there to talk about permanent staff. I think it's there to talk about everyone. So let me flip it around and look at what does a hiring manager see or, or, or a business leader. What they see is they need to get stuff done. They need to get work done and they need resources and people to get that work done. And what they want to see is they know they need a workforce for that. They don't really mind where that workforce comes from in the vast majority of cases. It could be permanent. It could be external. It could be internal. Um, it could be a contingent worker temp. It could be someone under a statement of work or a series of people under a statement of work. It could be from a big four consultancy. But they just want to know what's the best way of getting it done. And if, if I think about how, as a business leader, I get other things achieved in my organisation, if I want to go get something done with HR. I go to my HR business partner. If I go to procurement, um, I go to, um, you know, or want to buy something. Often I would go to my, my procurement um, partner. Legal, I go to legal. But when it comes to bringing in talent, I've got somebody that deals with permanent recruitment that faces off to me. I've got somebody that deals with non-permanent recruitment. I've, if I want someone under consultancy services, I might go directly or I might go to my procurement person. If it's graduates I need, well, that might be someone new, separate, who works in campus. Um, and if it's internal, well, is that the same person or is, or is that not? I seem to have multiple um, entry points. And, and that's the thing that I think will change because I think that we will move away from permanent, non-permanent, um, you know, sourcing people, being multiple access points. I think we'll move into a world of workforce business partners where as a business leader, I have somebody who is an expert in my business and is an expert in sourcing skills for my business, wherever that may come from. And I think the missing link, the reason why that hasn't happened historically is having accurate data at your fingertips, having tools that give you the availability of talent under different, uh, different channels and routes has not really been there, but that's changing now. So I think that we are going to see a significant change in that area, but I do not underestimate the enormity of that change because even if we had a client that I spoke to today that said, that's what we want to do, I agree with you, processes, systems, accountability internally, skill sets of individuals all would need to be looked at. So, so this is something which is a um, one two at least year projects for us to get there. But I, so I firmly, firmly believe that the successor of total talent will be what I refer to as the workforce model. It will be 
um, epitomized by having workforce business partners rather than multiple people facing off to individual business leaders. It is an inevitable consequence of having better access to data. It'll take us a period of time to get there. It makes sense though. It makes sense because the alternative or what we have right now is that hiring manager or whoever wants to get the work done, they're making those decisions themselves, right? And they're saying, okay, I've got this problem. I'm going to go to permanent. Um, and that's not entirely reliable uh, unless you're you know, <laughs> training all those people and uh, to make that decision, which doesn't sound sustainable either. That The model that, that it's not the most, you know, optimized thing. It, it, it's not going to, it's not going to work as well as you know, what you just explained to me. But um, I guess we're just so, in, it was so uh, buried underneath the processes that we have and got used to that way of working that it's, <laughs> it's one of those things that's going to take a while to get there, right? Yeah, I agree. And as you say, I was talking to a, a senior hiring manager at one of our clients yesterday and they said to me, the biggest frustration I have is that I need to make a decision about whether I'm going to hire permanently or non-permanently. That's the first thing I have to do. And I don't know the answer to that. So when are you going to fix that? Yeah. Um, and, and I don't think that individual will be alone in thinking that. So I, yeah, I think that that is coming, but, but it, it is the, I mean, just to, when I said about the enormity of internal structures, just to bring that to life, as a minimum, you'd be saying, Consultants under statement of work, contractors under um, like MSP type services, and permanent recruitment, permanent external recruitment would all be managed collectively because they're all forms of external hire. While in most organisations they're owned by at least two, if not three, different areas of the business. So, so how do we figure that out? So that's one. That's and that's just the first thing you thought up before you can get into you know systems and data access and talent markets and and that you know geographies that we were talking about earlier. Which yeah. which, which location? Well, actually, a you know, hiring manager says I want to hire this person in in the UK. Well, you know they they might be based in London. Well, could I hire them in Devon or Newcastle or or uh, continental Europe or India? You know, there's all those sorts of things. So, so there's a lot. There's a lot of change coming. I do think the tools are going to make it possible. I don't think it'll be overnight. Yeah. Okay. Um, I wanted to ask you a question, but I think you, we might have covered some of it. Uh, so maybe just fill in the blanks. Um, I wanted to talk about the workforce of the future and you know what that will look like in the long term. Um, have we said it, or is there something missing? Yeah, I th I th well, I think we, I think we have talked about the workforce in the future already to a certain extent. It, it will be, it will be more flexible. There will be, um, there will definitely be, I think, a higher proportion of people, in my opinion, who will uh, be be on non permanent um, contracts. Not because big bad companies force them down that path, because I think that's what they want, and there will certainly be a greater proportion of people who'll be able to work remotely and might work in an office, you know, a couple of days a week as they needed to. But by flexibility, that might mean that you work. I think we'll move away from this kind of you know one or two days a week, whatever it might be, and move towards well, actually, you might do fifteen days straight if you need to in an office, and then you might do three weeks when you don't turn up at all. It'll be more locate as a, as appropriate. The other thing that I have definitely seen and this is this is back into the realms of predictions and I've, I've i it's a personal point of view i've no idea whether this bit's going to be right or not but i think that we've observed over the last few years that there has been an increasing percentage of hiring carried out internally but 
up until this year, the majority of that internal hiring was permanent hiring, as in I moved from one role to another role. What we've observed in 2020 is some organisations, not all, have really flipped into a world where there's a flexibility around internal hiring. And that could be secondments, or that could be a kind of gig approach whereby it might be maybe 20% of someone's time. So they appreciated they wanted to keep their workforce for the future. They wanted to keep people engaged. And, and, and as opportunities came up or as work was required to be done, I, I spoke to one organisation that said, well, we we worked on a 20% basis. If any, if any hiring manager needed one day a week of someone's time, they posted that internally and then people could apply because people had a bit of spare capacity. It was a roaring success. Another organisation said, well, we, we worked on a three month basis whereby we said, well, you know, if someone was, you can borrow someone for three months. And crucially, they said to the hiring manager that was looking for the, the, the resource internally, you don't have to pay for them for that period of time. They'll, they'll cost. And, it, and it made people go, oh, that's really interesting because I, I can think of that. I can solve it, get someone internally. And of course, it was great for, for staff. So so I do think there'll be an internal gig economy within organisations will become much more prevalent and standard than we've seen historically. I like that. I like that. Um, yeah. I think you, you're going to need visibility of uh, your entire workforce for that, right? And the, the you know, the skills and, uh, uh, but if you had that and you could see where the gaps are and have a holistic view and drop and drag and uh it's uh, that's pretty exciting. I agree. And, and that comes back to my point about some of this stuff that I've been talking about. There are tools that make it possible. And one of the reasons why we haven't got there in the past is that tools haven't made it easy. And I think that those kind of um, tools are now there. There are definitely internal recruitment tools that are far better than they used to be, like internal engagement tools. And without too much tweaking, you can every pretty much everybody has internal accessibility tools so people can apply if you post something and most people have you know crm candidate relation management type systems that enable you to store skills and individuals you've just got to flip that so it's looking at your internal people and people can self-populate so i make it sound easier than it is in reality but but if you really want to do it and if the benefits are there then i think it can happen and i and i do believe that that it will happen far more than it's happened in the past Love it. Um, final question. Um, is there anything else that you'd hope for the future of our industry? Well, great question. I would regard myself as kind of an optimist, I suppose, full stop. But even acknowledging that, I'm wildly optimistic about the future of our industry. I feel that we've had to have a real think this year about what to be do. And I think that the question has switched from how do we compete against other competitive firms? How do we compare against our competition to, to what are we doing that our clients really need? What services are we doing that they can't do for themselves? Which is a completely different question. And I think that is central to our future as an industry because we need to really challenge ourselves to do things better than our clients, to use our areas of expertise and to recognise that we really have that expertise. And we are experts in how do you hire people? How do you find talent in non-permanent, permanent markets in different markets around the world? We are experts in in technologies and how you utilise them. 
you know, we are um, experts in all sorts of, you know, you know, how do you hire people internally and how do we implement technologies, what technologies are best and for what reasons. And, and I think that because of that, we, we've perhaps been a little focused on the transactional elements of our services in the past. And we've realized that we, we, off, we can offer services, advisory services, because we're such experts and really our clients want that and we need to make sure that we're delivering that. So I really see that we are able to acknowledge, but both as AGS, but also as an industry, acknowledge the skills that we've got, acknowledge that expertise that we have, make sure that we are deploying that to our clients globally, making sure that we're being explicit about the benefits and the clients are seeing that. And I think as we do that, and I think we've got another year of making sure that we're clear and can articulate all of that properly. As we do that, I'm, I'm extremely optimistic about the future because I see that clients will see the value in what we offer and it will just benefit everybody, both on the client side and on the provider side. So I'm really optimistic and maybe it's because I'm in a honeymoon period and only just six months into a new organization and a new role. But genuinely, I feel super optimistic about it. We have a great uh, bunch of people working in our industry and I think it'll it'll only benefit and thrive in the future. Simon, that's fantastic. Um, thank you very much for your time. I've, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, Frank, thank you for the opportunity. It's been great to talk to you, really appreciate it. Thanks to Simon for being on our first episode of the season and thanks to you for joining us. If you'd like to learn more about AGS, please visit AllegisGlobalSolutions.com. And if you have any questions for Simon, please tweet us at AllegisGlobal with the hashtag subject to talent. Also, you can email us at subject to talent at AllegisGlobalSolutions.com. And if you enjoyed our podcast today, subscribe, rate us and leave a review. Until next time, cheers.